It's Tuesday, September 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. September 15th will mark another ambitious spaceflight from the private sector as we see the first all-civilian mission to orbit the Earth. SpaceX's next crewed mission will be called Inspiration4, and the crew members will orbit the Earth for three days, conduct science experiments, and fly higher than the International Space Station. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios, joins us for a preview of the next big space mission. Next, an interesting story about evolution and cannibalism. The invasive species of the Australian cane toad has very few predators, and with that lack of competing species, they are turning on each other. With limited resources, cane toad tadpoles have been seen eating toad hatchlings when they are new and vulnerable. In response, the hatchlings are even developing faster so they are tougher to eat. John Timmer, science editor at Ars Technica, joins us for the cannibal cane toad. Finally, a feel-good story of how a marriage certificate from 1870 was reunited with a distant family member. Hidden behind a picture frame in a thrift store in North Carolina, the weather document had little info to go on, but a local genealogist was able to crack the clues and find the great-granddaughter of the woman from the marriage certificate. Sydney Page, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how this document from the 1870s made its way home. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. But I think a lot of it is going to be them, like, taking pictures, looking at Earth, like, experiencing what life is, is like in space in this small capsule together. Joining us now is Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios and host of How It Happened, The Next Astronauts. We're in season two of that, so everybody go check that out. Miriam, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. We got some uh, exciting space news. Uh, We've already seen the billionaires launch into space, but the next one we're going to see is coming out of SpaceX, and this is going to be the first all-civilian mission to orbit. There's a pretty ambitious thing going on. You know, the goal of this is to bring space flight to normal people, to everyday people. So there's some interesting things happening with this specific one. So Miriam, help us walk through it. So the mission is called Inspiration4. It's the brainchild of a guy named Jared Isaacman. Uh, and it came together really quickly. I mean, he, he sort of started to talk to SpaceX about this at the end of last year, and they announced the mission in February. The really interesting part about this mission to me, though, is that Jared, instead of deciding to kind of bring a crew of his friends along for the ride, he opened up the selection process to many, many, many people. I mean, one seat was chosen through a raffle, one seat was chosen through sort of a, a funny, like, Shark Tank-style competition for entrepreneurs. And then St. Jude, who's partnering on this mission as a fundraiser, chose the other astronaut that's that's getting to fly with, with this crew. So it's just a very interesting selection process. The interesting for all, all of this, right, is obviously civilians. They're not astronauts by training, but they have been doing a lot of training for this. Well, you know, how, how, do, how does that work out? So since they were chosen in March and, and announced for the end of March, early April, they have been going kind of nonstop. I mean, they have been out to SpaceX almost every other week for a couple of the crew members to get trained up on everything that they need to know to live and work in space. They're only going to be up there for three days, but they need to basically be briefed on every system so that if something doesn't go exactly right, they'll be able to fix it. So they've been they've gone through centrifuge training, which basically simulates what it would feel like to launch. 
they have done water rescue training for when they splash down and come back to Earth. And they even did a 30-hour simulation at SpaceX headquarters where all of them were in close quarters in the Dragon simulator, the capsule simulator. That's an exact replica of what they'll be flying in space. And they lived in it for 30 hours together. So they, they you know, have gotten <laughs> wow. to know each other very well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. What is the actual mission going to consist of? So a lot of it is going to be them doing some science experiments up there. I think they're going to try to, you know, probably talk to the kids at St. Jude, maybe do a a few media events. But I think a lot of it is going to be them, like, taking pictures, looking at Earth, like, experiencing what life is is like in space in this small capsule together. I mean, I think that they're excited about learning what it's like to sleep in space, what it's like to eat. Everything is going to be different. What is the hope for this type of flight, this type of mission? What, What would this lead to? Well, I think for SpaceX, their big goal is to eventually bring many, many, many people to Mars. Like Elon Musk has talked about wanting to build a city on Mars before. And this is the kind of mission that you sort of have to learn how to fly in order to do that. When you want to do something as ambitious as as building a city on Mars, you're not just going to be able to rely on government trained and backed astronauts. It's going to have to be, you know, normal people. Like I remember Elon said something sort of funny and flippant in 2015, but that has resonated a lot. Like that's basically like, okay, if you're going to have a city on Mars, you need pizza parlors on Mars. You know, you need people to just sort of live there. So I think that this is the very, very first baby step toward understanding what it would take to make that a reality. And for SpaceX, what uh, what are they using? What are the rockets they're using? What are, what type of uh, flight equipment are they using? Yeah, so this is the Falcon 9 rocket. So their workhorse of a rocket has a great track record. It has flown people to space three times now. This will be the fourth crewed mission for SpaceX. Uh, and they're using a Dragon capsule that had actually previously been to the space station. But the interesting thing about this Dragon is they are modifying it. So instead of having a docking adapter at the top, which is what you need to attach to the space station, they're instead going to have this really cool, big bubble window that is, they're calling it the cupola. So it's going to be this like incredible 360 view of space. Like they'll be able to float around up in there and just sort of see what it's like. How much of this process is going to be automated? Because we saw that with some of the other flights that we saw out of Virgin Galactic and, uh, and out of Blue Origins. Is there, is any of this stuff going to be automated for them? It will be. A lot of it is controlled from the ground. Usually people in the capsule don't need to take over unless something is going wrong or unless they want to. The Dragon has a lot of autonomous features, so it likes to fly itself in a lot of ways or from ground control, helping it out. But it tends to be that the the folks on the actual capsule don't really need to take control unless something is going wrong. Right, exactly. Miriam Kramer, space reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. And it turns out cannibalism solves two of those in that you get a food resource, which is your fellow cane toads, and you also eliminate some of the competition in the process. Joining us now is John Timmer, science editor at Ars Technica. Thanks for joining us, John. Thank you for inviting me on. I want to talk about a story about evolution and cannibalism. Now, this is not a story about people, or this is about cane toads in Australia, but it actually gets pretty interesting. So the cane toad is an invasive, uh, invasive species 
that was brought to Australia from South America. And, uh, you know, they have uh, poison glands that really, you know, no other animal <laughs> likes to eat. It's pretty hazardous for them. But what we're seeing is that in the hatchlings and the tadpole stage of these cane toads in their development, they're cannibalizing each other. So, John, tell us what's going on here. There aren't many predators, although a few are starting to learn how to eat the cane toad. Birds have figured out if you flip them over, you could avoid all the toxins. And there's a species of ant that apparently can feed on them now. But for the most part, they don't face any competition. So their big competition becomes themselves. And you find the cane toads are competing with each other for habitat, for territory, for food resources. And it turns out cannibalism solves two of those in that you get a food resource, which is your fellow cane toads, and you also eliminate some of the competition in the process. And the fact is, since they can make all the toxins that are killing other other animals, they're obviously tolerant to them, so they don't have to worry about that either. Now, as I mentioned, they're not toads eating toads, fully developed ones. This is happening at the earlier stages. So the hatchlings will hatch. They're kind of really can't do much. They're just there laying at the bottom of the water or whatever. They spend two days typically between when the eggs hatch and when they become mobile and have a mouth and can start feeding. But as I mentioned at the top too, you know, there's an evolutionary aspect to this. When the hatchlings are kind of put in this situation, they tend to develop faster to avoid being eaten. Right. So if there's a two-day window where they're not very mobile and very vulnerable, that is part of their development. They can't get rid of it entirely, but they can speed it up. And what they're finding is in the Australian population and not in the native South American population, that stage of development is getting progressively shorter. And they're powering through it really quickly. And that's a way of just avoiding the vulnerable period and cutting down on the predation by their peers. I guess the scientists were able to find out that once they do hit the tadpole stage, their development becomes slower on that side. So you you sort of pay a cost for rushing through things that you really need to take the time to get right from a developmental perspective. So the cost gets paid later to compensate for that. And for a situation where they don't face a lot of other predators and there is one vulnerable window, that trade-off is worth it. But if you look back at the South American population that where the cane toad originated, there's no advantage to powering through that stage. So you don't see it happening. So then for those tadpoles that do survive, that do prey on the other hatchlings and everything, for them, though, it is a benefit. I mean, they end up coming out bigger. They're the ones that uh, have actually gotten all the nutrients and everything. So they're more adept to going out there and being very invasive to other parts of uh, Australia. Yeah, if your big vulnerability is dying during that window, and that's that's definitely the case in Australia, then whatever cost you pay later is worth it because the vulnerability is lower overall. From what I was reading, talking about the invasive species aspect of this, what I was reading was that in the 1930s, farmers in Queensland, Australia, thought that 
the cane toad would be able to gobble up beetles that were destroying sugar cane fields. So they brought them over and I guess they started out with like 102 individual toads and then it ballooned up to 200 million of them. So I don't know what the current numbers are of these cane toads, but you know, that that's kind of how these invasive species blow up. Yeah. It's really astonishing that you don't think too much about predation being a major source of issue. You don't think about parasites causing populations to plummet. But the reality is in the natural world, if you remove those things, populations can explode at a staggering rate. So it really gives us a sense of how important those things are in setting up an ecosystem that's functional. John Timmer, science editor at Ars Technica. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for talking with me. Because this was so important to this woman, she actually flew from upstate New York, where she lives, to North Carolina to retrieve the document and meet these women who made it their mission to return this family vestige of her legacy. Joining us now is Sydney Page, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Sydney. Thanks so much for having me. Sydney, we wanted to bring you on for this uh, nice little feel-good story. Uh, So in a thrift store in Bolivia, North Carolina, back in July... There was a picture frame that was donated, and it had a, a picture of a, of a little girl putting flowers onto a dog's collar, a cute little picture and whatnot. But in the back of that picture frame, there was a marriage certificate from the 1870s, and it was pretty weathered. You could only make out maybe some of the first names of, uh, of the people that were getting married. And the people there at the thrift store just really thought it would be a great idea to see if they can track down the descendants of whoever that family was that was getting married there. And it led everybody on to this nice little adventure. And they were in the end, they were able to find the great granddaughter of the person that was getting married in there. So it's a fun little story. Sydney, tell us what happened with it. So essentially what happened, I mean, you covered it pretty well, but a thrift store in Bolivia, which is a really small town with a population of about 200 people, they found this picture frame. And when they were cleaning out the frame, they found this marriage certificate. And, you know, just based on the fact that it's kind of this sort of ancient artifact that obviously had some meaning to some person, hopefully someone still alive, they were compelled to track down a family member of this couple that was married. But of course, they had very limited information. So the executive director of the organization that runs the thrift store decided to put out a plea on Facebook, thinking that it would be very unlikely that it would really yield any real results. But she did it anyways. Um, And a local genealogist actually came across the story and took it upon herself to crack the case and solve the mystery and was able to get to the bottom of it and contacted this woman who, as you said, is the great granddaughter of the couple who was married in in the certificate. And because this was so important to this woman, she actually flew from upstate New York, where she lives, to North Carolina to retrieve the document and meet these women who made it their mission to return this family vestige of her legacy to her. The marriage certificate was dated April 11th, 1872. And as I mentioned, you can really only make out the first names, William and Katie. And that's the little information that the genealogist had to go on. But obviously, she's good at what she does, I guess, right? She runs a, 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 a genealogy YouTube channel, too. And, and she took that and, and little by little, she was able to piece together the clues. Yeah. So actually, she explained to me how the process works. And in fact, she had more information than we thought she necessarily did. So 
she had the first names, but also, of course, the marriage certificate did feature the date. So we knew the date and we knew the names, albeit really only the first names. Uh, and we also knew the place in which the marriage certificate was issued. So those three things in conjunction allowed her to kind of make some educated guesses and connect some dots. And then, in fact, she found one of the witnesses who was named on the document. And that was how she tracked down the descendant and connected. That witness was actually a schoolmate of the woman who got married, the bride. So she really used her sleuthing skills. And, you know, she said the three main factors as a genealogist are date, name and place. So those three things were actually on the document, though very faintly. So they ended up finding the great-granddaughter. Her name was Irene Cornish. And I guess the genealogist was reaching out to her on Ancestry.com. And it was just kind of by Mm -hmm. chance that Irene said she logged on to Ancestry and checked a couple things. And she had seen a bunch of messages from the genealogist. I mean, that's probably a website most people aren't checking every day. And she just happened to see those messages. And that's how they were able to get connected. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the coolest parts of the story is she said, you know, sometimes she goes six months to a year without checking it. She does have an interest in genealogy, which is why she has an account and set up an account. And she just happened to go on it a few weeks after receiving a message. And she never knew she had a message. She was looking up some information about her great uncle on her father's side. So on the other side of the family. Um, And she happened to receive a message from this genealogist who attached a photo of the marriage certificate. And she said, right away, I knew it was my great grandparents, just based on the names and where they were located and the date. So it was it was pretty um, almost miraculous or remarkable that uh, she happened to actually visit the site. You know, just to add to all of this, you know, it it came at a perfect time for Irene Cornish as well. She said, you know, she was feeling maybe isolated. Uh, She hasn't kept up with a lot of her family. And this kind of provided her uh, that look into her past just to bring her a little bit more fulfillment. Uh, She was, you know, she found it a very welcome surprise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she said this was a huge pandemic bright spot for her. Um, and certainly she's feeling the isolation and the loneliness. And, you know, as you mentioned, her mother did pass away in 2010 and she doesn't have very many living relatives that she's in touch with. And so she said to me, you know, this really felt like my mother was reaching out to me and my grandmother was reaching out to me and my great grandmother was reaching out to me. And interestingly, actually, she's named after her great grandmother, the one who's featured in the marriage certificate. So wow. her middle name is Kathy. Um, And, you know, she always felt sort of a special connection to this woman who she's never known. And she knows very little about her life. And so this kind of felt like a small piece of her great grandmother that she now has framed, you know, in a place of honor in her home, which is really special. That's awesome. Well, in the end, uh, you know, because they said that the document was hidden, like in the back of the picture frame, did they say why it might have been put back there? Yeah, so there was a, a little bit of speculation as to why it might have been there. We don't know is the is the truth. We're not sure. There are some sort of scandalous assumptions that perhaps they had a child prior to being married, so out of wedlock, and therefore wanted to conceal the date of their wedding. But actually, that was recently debunked because they found um, some census data that confirmed that the child was born, their first child was born after they got married. So that was a theory that wasn't actually correct. Um, and then perhaps less scandalous is this idea that, you know, in the, in that time, there were no safe deposit boxes or anything to really store valuable items. And so actually, smartly putting it behind a picture frame would sort of preserve it and hide it and shield it and, and you know, allow it to keep its form um, and hopefully no one would steal it. So that's actually what Irene believes was the motivation behind hiding it. But we're not exactly sure. Sydney Page, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.